courageous leadership is something that is important to me because I think leadership in the 21st century is quite different than what it was in years past. And I think it requires a great deal of courage and an understanding of what courage is in the current work environment and how to bring that to bear. The idea of what it means to be a courageous leader in the 21st century has changed as well. So I've been very much involved in trying to help companies and individuals understand what uh, being a courageous leader looks like, manifests itself in the workplace, and actually what it is, because it really has changed from the years where the sort of all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful leader decreed things and they supposedly somehow magically happen. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Hello, I am Brian Gorman, the host for Conversations powered by Quantibos. And my guest today is Robert Naylor. Hello, Robert. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm good. Robert, I'd like to begin by just asking you to share with us your path to becoming a coach and why courageous leadership is such an important topic for you that it's the topic of our conversation today. Coaching is something that I started doing on an informal basis in the, in the work environment and then in a more formalized role. And so I'm, I'm a journalist and I still like to call myself a journalist, but I'm a journalist by, by training and profession. And I worked in the news business for a very long time. The last company I worked for was the Associated Press, where I spent 25 years. So I sort of came up through the ranks like most journalists. I was a reporter and writer and an editor. And I came to Associated Press headquarters in New York in 2001 after having been a, a bureau chief uh, in two states, and that's including upstate New York. And a bureau chief in the AP at that time was someone who was in charge of the field operation in the state. They managed the journalism and, and the business operations and the marketing. And I had gotten involved in strategic planning and recruitment and diversity efforts and was chairman of the company's diversity council. So I'd gotten involved in a lot of projects there. So I came to New York to do planning and strategy for the then executive editor and senior vice president. And his successor asked me to take on a role as director of career development, which was largely undefined. And it, and it was both the task and the opportunity to sort of define the role for myself. I had spent uh, some time sort of figuring out what to do and how to do it and re-educating myself and settled into a role that was largely about three things. One was leadership development for staff and managers globally, recruitment and onboarding and diversity, equity, inclusion. So I sort of had that triple assignment. I did a lot of work in leadership development and team dynamics and operational, improving operational efficiencies. And out of that began doing some coaching work 
we did 360, 360 feedbacks on managers, and then I got certified in doing those, and then followed up by beginning to learn how to become a coach to work with those people after the fact. I took an early retirement from the AP and decided to go into coaching full-time, got my certification and a graduate degree in organizational leadership, and here I am. What brings you to courageous leadership as an area of importance to you? I work with a lot of companies, and people tend to think of me as someone who's very involved in DEI, and that is true. It is a passion of mine. I began this journey as a leadership development professional. Courageous leadership is something that is important to me because I think leadership in the 21st century is quite different than what it was in years past. And I think it requires a great deal of courage and an understanding of what courage is in the current work environment and how to bring that to bear. The idea of what it means to be a courageous leader in the 21st century has changed as well. So I've been very much involved in trying to help companies and individuals understand what uh, being a courageous leader looks like, manifests itself in the workplace, and actually what it is, because it really has changed from the years where the sort of all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful leader decreed things and they supposedly somehow magically happen. The workplace is very different in, in the 21st century. And so that's part of what I've been trying to focus on. I want to get into a conversation on this with you because I couldn't agree with you more, but I need to ask one more question to sort of kick that conversation off. You say leadership has changed in the 21st century and implied in that is that many leaders have not changed. Well, it's been difficult for many leaders to change because many of them have been indoctrinated in the cultures of the organizations where they worked or in the idea of what it means to be a leader, even if they've changed organizations. So, you you know, we tend to default to what we know. The lessons that we've learned and the ideals that have been instilled us, we tend to hold on to. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it's human nature to do that. So there is a lot of good in that. But the other side of it is, is that as the world of work has changed, it's been a bit more difficult for many of those people to change along with it. And so the, the truth is that many leaders have not changed. And we're seeing some of that played out in conflicts in the workplace these days, where there's a lot of pushback from millennials and particularly younger millennials and Gen Zers about the importance of work in their life, their lives, what they bring to the work environment, what they expect out of the work environment, work-life balance, work-life integration, all those things, their ideals are different than those of their parents who they, they saw spend a lot of years working and not quite getting the rewards that they had expected, you know, particularly, you know, uh, the late boomers and early Gen Xers as they begin to mature in their careers. So the younger, um, I should say, less experienced people in the work now, the, gen, the, the younger millennials, the Gen Zers, have a very different view of work, and it's and there's a lot of conflicts in some fairly prominent organizations now about how to manage those people because leadership has not changed along with the attitudes about work. I want to talk about a couple of examples of exactly what you're talking about. One became very public. I honestly don't remember. It was more than a year ago now, but it was Facebook or Microsoft or Apple, one of those mega tech companies proudly announced that workers would only have to come back into the workplace three days a week. And the workers raised a public voice and said, wait a minute, you didn't ask us. Right. I was shocked the first time I had a client and it turns out it was not a unique situation. I've had four clients now in the last three or four months. The first time I had a client say to me, coach, I want you to help me prepare to tell my boss that I am not fulfilled in the work that he's having me do. And one way or another, 
Now, I've had three more clients say, I need to have a conversation with my boss about helping me find a new job in the company or helping me find a job elsewhere. So to me, those are just simple examples of how different the workforce is today. And I agree with you 100%. Particularly when I deal with younger workers, it is really important to them for the people that they report to however dedicated they may be to the work, to say, here are the potential next opportunities for you. And I think they're always looking for those. Even as they are settling into a brand new job, their thoughts are already in, where do I need to go next? How do I get there? And how do I use this job as a stepping stone to that? I grew up in an environment where you accepted a task that was given to you. You thought, I'll work hard and I'll prove myself, and then they'll ask me to do the next thing. When I went to work for the Associated Press, honestly, I got a new job, and my manager said to me, what do you want to do next? And that was, at the time, that was kind of unheard of all those years ago. I mean, nobody had ever done that for me before. And I said to him, well, I, I want to be really good at this job. And he said, no, I need to know what you want to do next. And then I realized he was serious about it. And, you know, I was a, I was primarily a political reporter and covered state government. I was, and then I said, well, I want to go to Washington. And I was a small town guy and had this lofty goal of going to Washington. And he said, okay. He went about putting in place the steps that I needed to go to Washington, which I did do. And I, I went to Washington, got to cover presidential campaign, which was a dream job for me. But it gave me the motivation to want to do that once I knew that there was an actual path to that. That was very different at the time. And it was it surprised me that someone actually asked me that. These days, it's expected. If I'm going to take this job, how is it going to be a stepping stone to the next thing that I want to do and intend? What that brings to mind, Robert, I was on a Quantipos panel probably close to a year and a half ago now. We had a number of HR leaders from, from client organizations on, one of whom has significant manufacturing as a, a part of their enterprise. And she said, we now have to bring career counselors into the factories because unlike their parents' generation, people are not coming to work in the factories with the intention of retiring from the factories. Right. And I want to cite a different example. Again, a Quantivos client that I've been working with that has a significant blue-collar workforce. They're working to change the culture of the division that I'm working with. One of the leaders said it very clearly. He said, do you think there's anyone who's down in the workforce today looking up at us as the leadership working seven days a week and saying, if I work hard for the next 20 years, I too can be working seven days a week as a leader? Yeah. So clearly the workforce has changed. Why does it take courageous leadership to change? The courage comes in in several things. One is admitting that we need to do something differently than we do now, which may not seem very courageous, but it actually is because it's difficult for people in prominent roles and organizations themselves to say, however successful we've been at this, maybe we need to look at going in a different direction. That's the first thing. And second, admitting vulnerabilities that you then have to expose to others to say, we need your help in doing this. And I think that's a big part of courageous leadership. I started to work all those years ago with this notion of my bosses should know. And when I first went on the path of working as a leadership development professional within an organization, I started talking to people about having conversations with your boss about what it is that you do on a daily basis, what your job is really like. So they give you a job description, but what is your job really like? And I remember being at a group session and somebody saying to me, doing it's their, their job to know what I'm doing. Well, that may be true, except you're the one who's close to the work. And so from a leadership standpoint, you need to be willing to admit 
that I don't know everything that my employees do on a daily basis. There's a knowledge base within the organization that they possess that I do not. And I need to be able to be vulnerable enough to tap into that. That requires courage because it, it means you have to admit, I don't know everything. I have vulnerabilities and weaknesses and blind spots. And there's something that I often talk about that in a department store, the ugly clothes that are put on the, the clearance racks at the end of the season, the salespeople on those floors know what's no long before the systems do what's not selling. And they also know why it's not selling because they see people pick it up and say, this is ugly and put it down. And so there's nothing wrong with the systems, but there's also a great deal of intelligence in the workforce that's, that's at those sort of more basic levels of the organization. And I think it requires a level of courage to say, we need to depend on that. The other thing is, which is kind of a big deal in a lot of ways, is being able to admit mistakes. It hadn't been that many years ago that graduate schools were teaching MBA candidates to never admit that you made a mistake, which is really kind of ridiculous because A, the people who report to you probably already know you made a mistake. They know you screwed up. And by not admitting it, you create a barrier between yourself and them where they are not willing to come and help you because they assume that you don't want the help. But by admitting the mistake, you admit to the vulnerabilities that I, I just talked about. And you open yourself up to getting help from other people who know something about the organization that you don't. I want to pick up on both of those points, Robert. The first being the knowledge that's deep within the organization. I've done a lot of work around the shifting workplace hybrid and work from home and four-day work week and all of those kinds of things, the forces driving the great resignation. Very much like the, the earlier uh, tech company example that I gave you, those companies that are figuring out how to make this new environment and work are the ones that are saying, we need to make change. You, frontline employees on up, need to help us figure out what those changes are and how to make them work. Those that have said, for example, we're going to a four-day work week You'll get the same pay. You just need to give us the same output, if you will, and try to drive it from the top. They haven't worked. It hasn't worked. The other piece that you're talking about, that vulnerability, is also so important. Because like you said, people know when you screw up. Yeah. To not acknowledge that, I think not only does it make people not want to help you, not want to, want to drive as hard for you, it also really damages your credibility as a leader. Absolutely. Because if you're not going to be truthful with me about the mistakes that you're making, what else are you not going to be truthful right. about? There is one other thing that a Harvard Business Review article talked about recently, and that's the willingness of organizations and leaders to, and this is part of the courage as well, the, the willingness to not necessarily be deterred by initial mistakes that too many that the point being uh, and this was a fairly deep dive in the article that that too many organizations try something and it's not quite the success they expect and then they think well it's a failure and we're going to move go back to what we were doing what these researchers were saying is that sometimes the leaders have to have the courage to say we are moving towards something in our future that will make a positive difference for the organization and we are going to use these failures as learning opportunities, which is difficult for some. We're going to use these as learning opportunities and not give up so quickly because we know what the end result is that we expect. The organizations that I work with that are looking to move toward a four-day work week 
and that might be a literal four days. Some are going Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday through Thursday, Thursday or Tuesday through Friday, some form of that with customer service rotating so customer service is still available five days a week or seven days a week. Some are going to a hybrid mix of some employees on four days, others on five, but the, the overall work hours are, are reduced. Those that are successful in making that transition are inevitably, again, asking the workers, how do we make this work? But then also be, being very clear, this is an experiment. This is a pilot. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to, to somebody the other day who successfully took his company to a four-day work week, and they actually contracted with an external assessor to set up milestones for them, with them to track against those milestones so that they could learn where they needed to make adjustments and assess at the end of the pilot whether they had achieved what they were setting out to achieve, which was the same or better results, less work hours, physically, mentally, healthier, less stressed employees. But again, it's admitting we don't have all the answers. I think that also really brings up another point about courageous leadership in that it requires allowing employees to approach work in a way that plays to their individual strengths rather than prescriptive you know, environments. There are some jobs that if you are working on an assembly line and you're putting, you know, as we used to joke about the, your, your peg in the hole, then you put the peg in the hole. But so much work these days is part of the, the knowledge economy and it requires thought processes and levels of creativity on the parts of in, the, the individuals who are doing the work. And leaders have to be courageous enough to allow people to approach the work in ways that's most productive for them. Because I think too many bosses are as worried about how you achieve results as whether you achieve results. And I, th you know, I, I think what matters there is, am I doing my job in a way that's ethical, that is fits within the boundaries of, of what's right and wrong for this organization? Am, am I actually contributing to the organization? Beyond that, does it really matter how I get my job done you know, in terms of my creative processes, my approach to work? if I'm getting my job. I think courageous leadership means allowing people to do their jobs in a way that plays to their strengths rather than the way you prescribe it. And I think the thing that that brings up for me is that requires a level of trust of those people who, who work in your area of supervision, if you will. It requires knowing them not just for the skills that you described in the job description but knowing them more deeply as people rather than just the roles. Because each of us brings a whole set of skills and experience and learning that go well beyond any job description. I think that's an important thing. One of the things we know about individual leadership for any individual, any person, is that confidence breeds confidence. So if people are good at what they do and you allow them to play to their strengths, and do their jobs in a way that allows them to achieve, result, achieve results, they become more confident at doing their jobs in the, in the process. So, so one builds on the other. I'm, I, 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 I've had the opportunity to do my job the way that I feel good about, so I become more confident at it, but I also become more confident, more, more confident in doing that work. And so the organization benefits in both those ways. And I think that's, that's an important thing. And again, it's part of, of, uh, 
of courageous leadership is allowing people to do those things. And we've all we've known for a very long time, you know, for the last 60, 70 years that this notion of confident competence is um, is an important part of leadership development and, and bringing people up through an organization. And, you know, so it's another reason not to be prescriptive about the ways that people do their approach their work. The other thing that is a real morale killer, and I've worked with any number of managers on this, is defaulting to micromanagement. It's that you're not doing your job the way that I would have you do it. And I once had uh, someone I was coaching said, well, I, I choose people for assignments who would do the work the way I would do it. Well, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is about my early days in journalism when I, I had an editor who was a terrific journalist himself, but he didn't so much as edit stories as he rewrote them. And so, so I was working for a newspaper. By the time the newspaper came out, it read as though every story in the paper he had written. And a, a, a good editor, you know, and, and journalists will always tell you this, a good editor can blow up your story, you know, do everything that needs to be done to, to improve it. And it still reads like your story, like you wrote it. And I think work in general is that way, that bosses need to know what is the right touch here so that I can work with people on improving their work, but not insisting that they do it the way that I would do it. That's a real, a real morale killer. Absolutely. Robert, what else is important as we go to wrap this up about courageous leadership in the 21st century? One of the things I would say is leading by example. I just talked about micromanaging. Leaders have to walk the talk. It's not enough to say what we expect out of people. You have to actually do that yourself. And that has become an important thing. You know, your actions have to mirror what you say, and you have to rely on your habits and your practices and your routines and your behaviors with your core values. And the core values have to be things that are stated. You know, people perform better for organizations whose values they align with. So that's an important thing is state what the core values are. Then you really have to walk the talk and you have to demonstrate the excellence that you uh, expect to see in the people who report up to you. It's important to have convictions. And I don't want for a moment to suggest that that is not the case. But a conviction is not rigidity. And I think that's what really undermines the work environment is rigidity. So uh, having convictions is not the same thing as being rigid in your expectations and you have to be willing to, to make adjustments on your own and allow people to adjust. The, a, you have to be able to adjust your leadership style to deal with every individual in your workplace. Because as we often talk about in DEI, allow people to bring their whole selves to work, then you've got to deal with people in their whole selves because it really is about allowing people to be the best that they can be. And one other thing that's really important to me as both a leadership development professional and someone who is very involved in DEI is embracing diversity in all of its facets and seeing diversity as an opportunity rather than a challenge. This is an area where I do a lot of work. And even organizations that often embrace DEI as a business imperative see it in terms of challenges. And, and that's what they want to talk to me about. How do we meet the challenges that we face in diversifying our organization? And my attitude is the first thing you need to do is adjust your thinking about that so that you don't see it so much as a challenge as you do an opportunity. And I think that's an important thing because when you allow people to bring their whole selves to work, as we often talk, again, we often talk about in DEI, I think it allows them to approach work in a way that contributes to the organization on a high level and they become more satisfied with the work environment and you are more satisfied. Robert Naylor, thank you so much for this conversation. I've learned something. Hopefully our listeners have as well. Thank you, Brian.